Some things should be easy. Explaining what I see inside my mind when I close my eyes should be one of them. And yet, when I try to pin it down, I have such doubts. Do I really see a world of shapes and colors in my mind's eye? Or do I just tell myself that? Is the inside of my mind perhaps just darkness? Or something even weirder? When I stare inwardly long enough, all that seems to remain is to embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 92 of Embrace the Void, where we all wish we were philosophical zombies because it would make this a lot easier. I am your host, Aaron, and this week in the void, I have on Dr. Keith Frankish, a major proponent of the illusionist theory of consciousness, uh, which Daniel Dennett has referred to as the new default theory for talking about consciousness. Um, Keith and I come from fairly different churches, uh, philosophically speaking, on this topic, but we have a really great time hacking away at the problems, uh, so much so that this ends up as a uh, long two-parter. So uh, this will be part one. Apologies for any terminology that we didn't thoroughly define in the moment. This is a wide-sweeping topic with a lot of implications, and, and we did our best, but it's really hard to say all the things that need to be said. So uh, feel free to hit us up with any questions, and we can do some follow-up. Um, so yeah, pitter-patter, let's get at her. Okay, our guest this week, uh, I'm very excited, uh, Dr. Keith Frankish, substantial proponent of the illusionism theory. Uh, Keith, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Yeah. And hello, fellow fellow denizens of the void. <laughs> uh, according to your work, apparently, we're just voids all the way down, which I'm excited to, to discuss that um, some. So thank you so much for coming on. I really, I've enjoyed uh, chatting with you a bunch on um, Twitter and things. And you've been so generous sending me your papers and talking through uh, the arguments. And this is a topic that uh, I really care a lot about from a, a bunch of different um, angles. So... That being said, there's going to be an attempt to try to, you know, straighten out a conversation that involves a lot of different uh, things, um, and we're going to do our best to try to signpost uh, as much as we can. If folks want a little bit more background on this conversation, um, over on Philosophers in Space episodes four and five, we did uh, the Turing test and Chinese Room, which I think are, in important ways, 
uh, related to what we're going to talk about here. Um, so uh, Keith and I were discussing before try, ways that we can try to make this sort of very dense conversation um, accessible. Um, and the first thing I wanted to do uh, before we get into the theories, we'll sort of do the end first and then come back around to it, is uh, lay down some markers for what the implications of this philosophical debate are going to be when we get back into the real world, right, back out of the theories. So do you want to maybe say a little bit, for starters, about uh, why you think this conversation is really important and has important implications? Sure. Um, and thanks for inviting me onto the program. Uh, I'm a big fan of the of the podcast, and I think you're doing a great job. So consciousness, well, consciousness is important. Mm -hmm. uh, some people might say it's the, the most important thing uh, perhaps in the universe. And it's important to think about it in the right way. And I think, or I'm exploring the hypothesis, that we're not thinking about it in the right way, that we're thinking about it in a, uh, in a quite natural but ultimately misleading way. And I think that has that leads us to ask all sorts of questions, okay. some of which I think are unanswerable because they're not really well-formed questions. And these questions would include things like, would artificial intelligence of a sufficiently complex kind be conscious? Mm -hmm. uh, are other animals conscious? And if so, which ones are fish conscious? Uh, is your consciousness like mine, or could it be very different? And these questions are also related to questions, or we tend to relate them to questions about uh, ethical questions, to questions mm -hmm. about value. Uh, if, you're, if a creature is conscious, then we think it's life matters in a way that the life of a non-conscious creature wouldn't. And so if artificial mm -hmm. intelligences aren't conscious, then perhaps we can treat them without much respect. We can just treat them as tools. On the other hand, if they're conscious, well, then they're, they're like us. They're, they're subjects in their own right, and they have to be respected. Now, um, mm -hmm. now these questions are, are kind of good questions, but we need to be operating, I think, with a good and coherent concept of consciousness if we're going to ask right. these questions. And I, and I suspect that we're not doing, we're operating with a, as I said, with a, quite a natural one. Uh, but one I, ultimately I think that misleads us. Another okay, well, way in which this impacts on, uh, not so much on everyday life, but certainly on science, is in looking, it's in trying to do a science of consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, to try to find out what are the, the neural mechanisms of consciousness. And again, if we're going to ask that question, we need to know what it is that we're looking right. for the neural mechanisms of. As well as like psychology and psychotherapy, things, all, all those sorts of it, uh, Absolutely. It ramifies out into all of these things. It's a fundamental concept. And so, I remember a psychologist once said to me, a quite eminent psychologist said to me, well, you know, you philosophers, there's only one <laughs> thing we ever really wanted you to, to sort out for us, and that's consciousness. And you haven't done it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just that one pesky little thing <laughs> well, just the, get on well, that well i think it was joe photo who said philosophy is what you do to a subject 
uh, until you're in a position to do science on it. Uh, yeah. And with <laughs> and with um, that's uh, in philosophy of mind. That's not so much a uh, that's that's a. That's yeah, we, we've talked outrageous. about that sort of scientism, uh, potentially scientism view before, and like I think yeah. in philosophy of mind, that's perhaps not such an outrageous claim as it might be in other areas. Um, Interesting. But, I think it's, it's, I guess for me, the opposite is seems the case. Like in <laughs> in philosophy of mind, that's the least plausible place that I would that I would buy a claim like that. Um, ah. But I, I really I think this is a great setup because I think you've hit on a lot of the things that I think are really important here. So that means that, you know, even though I think you and I come from different churches in this one and have like, are going to have somewhat differing intuitions and perspectives and arguments, it seems like we agree on the stakes, which is important, right? We agree that like this matters for uh, AI, this matters for ethics, that there are sort of important implications for how we live our lives based on whether or not entities are conscious or not. Uh I, I agree, but with a caveat. I don't think mm -hmm. that there are, the implications are straightforward that you can read off from, say, an illusionist approach mm -hmm. to certain direct conclusions or from a realist approach. To Absolutely. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, I, I certainly you didn't want to give the impression that, like, right, we're going to break down, again, on easy lines on this, but at least we, we agree at what matters in terms of the implications, potentially. Mm -hmm. right. uh, given a whole bunch of other... Right. Uh, 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 premises, yes. Yeah, so let's dive into your theory a little bit here. I, I, sorry, let me say that. Uh, let me back up. Um, before we dive into your theory, I think it would be useful to give folks just a, a overview of how you saw the state of play of this debate when you <laughs> entered into it, right? Like, what were the sort of given positions available when you sort of uh, engaged with this philosophy of mind problem? <laughs> right. Um well, I, I got into this, just a little of personal history, I got into it through writing a textbook about consciousness. Um, oh, I, my interests in, uh, my research interests initially were in philosophy of mind, but they were more in the nature of belief. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd written a book on that. But I was working at the time for the Open University in the in the UK as a, what they call a, a central academic, uh, writing courses for um, mm -hmm. the large student population. And I... Um, was down to write up a textbook on consciousness. So I thought this was a good opportunity to kind of acquaint myself with what was happening here. I'd, I'd been following the debates at a sort of, uh, in a fairly casual way. But writing this textbook gave me the opportunity to really sort of explore every, all the main uh, positions in, in some depth. And I think there's no better way than getting yourself into a field um, mm -hmm. than, to, than to try to explain it to someone else. Because you have to, you have to really know it inside out in order to be able to explain it clearly. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did that, and I set it up, I suppose, around the two. Uh, uh, well, I, I started with David Chalmers' distinction, uh, which your listeners may know, between what he calls the easy problems of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. And the easy problems here are explaining the kind of... Um, the sensitivities, the reactions, the dispositions that are associated with being conscious. So you're sensitive to certain features of the world and you can react to those features and mm -hmm. you can uh, use the, your perceptual abilities to, to, to guide your behavior and so on. And all of this is a kind of, so it can be seen as a sort of engineering problem. All of these uh, a functionalism can, kind of problem. 
from the perspective of, of uh, yes, they can be characterized in functional terms, in terms of processing information about the world and using that information to guide your behavior. And so those he said, now, he, of course, there are, that's that's the massive research project to, to, to understand all this, but it's not one that seems uh, deeply problematic. I mean, we have kind of tools in cognitive science to, to explain these sorts of things. And um, yes, there are many, many uh, issues there, philosophical issues, but it's generally seen as something that we can get a grip on. And whether even if we're not quite doing it right, we're, we, we can see how we can make progress with that. The other thing is uh, uh, the hard problem is a different matter. This is, as all this information processing is going on, as you're as observing, I'm, right now I'm looking outside the window and I can see the blue sky and some houses and some trees and a bird flying across. As I'm, as my brain is processing all that information, there also seems to be a subjective aspect to it all. It's kind of mm -hmm. like something from the inside, as it were, for all that information processing to be happening. The blue sky looks as it looks. <laughs> uh, the trees, uh, the, the houses, they all have a characteristic visual appearance to me. And this seems much, much more problematic. Um, how mm -hmm. could cognitive science, how could neuroscience and the other branches of cognitive science get a grip on this? Uh, the sky looks to me what I call blue. Does it look the same to you, to other people? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You say that it's blue. We all describe it as blue. But the, the inner sensation of blue, how do we know that's the same between different people? Okay, so, so that's the like the unverifiability problem that I think we'll want to spend some some time on. That is a, an issue for folks like me who uh, don't want to get rid of a, a subjectivism, right? Who 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 feel like there is something essentially subjective that it's hard to get away from, um, with all the costs that that may bring philosophically. Yes, I mean, there's there's just I, there's no way it seems in which science can can check what your experiences are like and whether they're similar to mine uh, yeah um, and i may agree with you and I, I think we'll want to talk about what that means for things like ai because i think it's it means some really important implications for ai consciousness um indeed and m more than that it's not just that science can't check whether our experiences are the same it can't check that we that other people have experiences um right exactly i could uh, this is why this is a voidy philosophy topic it's because we can't check any of it i think we can check the neuroscientists can check that other people have that all the functional processes all the information processing that's going on in another person's brain is the same as what's going on in theirs mm -hmm. in, in principle they could check that but they can't check that the feeling the inner feeling is the same Right. Um, so I think that's really important. But before we get into that back and forth, do you want to lay out the sort of opposing position to Chalmers? Like, well, this is it. This is this is a common way of setting up a okay, problem great. with consciousness. And I, I actually think it. We've already gone wrong. Okay. I think this way of setting it up, uh, there being a hard problem that is separate. That was fast. We got there quick. <laughs> but but that, that is the problem. I think. That I think the debate is is, you see, what I've just done here, I've introduced this distinction between the easy problems and the hard problem, and I've talked about possible cases of uh, 
absent uh, what the, the word that's often used uh, if, for mm-hmm. this in a uh, subjective aspect of experience is the, the qualia the quality of the what it is qualia, like yeah the what it is likeness of experience uh, the subjective feel the phenomenality many different words but they're all trying to capture this subjective aspect now and so we set this up by identifying this in a uh, subjective aspect and then we point out that this how do we know this isn't inverted in different people so that what looks as what so what we call blue things look different to you maybe look to you as yellow things look to me um, how do we know that right. it's not missing how do we know that it's not missing? how do we know that other people just don't have any um of this right. uh, don't have an inner life of this kind that they're not zombies who behave just like human beings like like myself but don't have this inner life that i have because after all remember that their behavior and their reactions and their words are all supposed to be explained in terms of the information processing in terms of the, the stuff that comes under the heading of the easy problems uh, this it's subjective this inner aspect seems to be something extra that is kind of um uh super derogatory if you like well it's so tough. i mean i think this is a little tricky because my feeling on it at this point is there may not be a way to prove when something has phenomenal consciousness, but there may be ways to prove effectively that it doesn't. So that kind of negative proof could suggest a, 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 it, how we can, you know, at least show that there is something there by showing its absence in other cases. That would be... That would be very interesting. I, I'm skeptical about that, and I'd like to hear your... your All right, uh, yeah, let's just dive sure, right in. Sure, why not? Um, yeah, so, so the, I mean, this, this is why the AI stuff is really important for me, is because there is this really important question of um, how do we know that the AI entity, if it's playing chess, if it knows what chess is, if it's having any inner world of experience. Because, I mean, like, let me ask you this question. Would you agree that there's a difference in, on some level, on some important level between me playing chess and Deep Blue playing chess? Um, there are huge differences. Uh, right. Differences. Okay. Many, many. I don't, what I don't think there is uh, is some sort of clean sort of qualitative difference. Like there's a sort of uh, like there's something that sort of something a sort of inner light is flicked on in your case and it's off in, well, the, in deep blues cases, but there are massive differences. Uh, it differences seems like there is. Which, I mean, it seems like there is a bit of a substantial difference, though, in terms of our awareness of meaning. Right, this gets to this Chinese room idea, where. I understand the the ideas. I'm 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 sort of aware of the meaning. Like if we switch to language from chess, right? Like when you and I are having this conversation, I'm interpreting the meanings of what you are saying and not merely their structures and forms through reliable algorithms that that predict uh, you know, what the correct responses should be. And I, I believe that you're doing the same thing. And I think we would both agree that if we got a uh, chat bot into this conversation, it would not be doing that. Oh, and that we have good reason to, we, that we know that it's not doing that, even though we can't see inside its head. Oh, absolutely. But that's, but that is, I think is a matter of our having vastly more complex uh, sensitivities and reactive dispositions or, mm-hmm within the broad under the broad heading of the the, the easy problems uh 
vas- we are vastly more functionally complex. Well, we so that, that's, that's of- an interesting comment too, because I think that like sometimes it feels like the illusionists are making arguments of, you know, all consciousness is just differences in degrees, but like, so, so this gets to questions of like, can you distinguish between as if consciousness and genuine consciousness? Can you, or do you have to sort of bite the bullet like Dennett does in, in one paper at least and say, you know, a, a sufficiently advanced thermostat is conscious in the same ways that humans are conscious? Well, well what would a sufficiently advanced, uh, if, if a thermostat was made as functionally complex as I am, then yes, it would be, but then it wouldn't really be a thermostat any longer um (laughs) uh, what i don't think is that there are any differences that don't show up in the sort of sensitivities and dispositions that we can detect there are no sort of if there if there is a difference it shows up in behavior somewhere somehow in the kind of sensitivities that the creature has in the way that the creature reacts to the world consciousness is a, a kind of interaction between ourselves and the world it's the world impacting on us and us reacting to it and differences in consciousness i mean the differences are differences in the nature of that interaction in the kind of things we can ultimately do with the world and with ourselves now uh there are obviously the differences between a thermostat and us a thermostat can do one thing one thing only we can do an open-ended we can do millions and millions of things, an open-ended range of things. The difference is, is huge. But it isn't a difference of a, in a light flicking on at some point in the sequence between us and... Uh, well, so what do you mean by this? I mean, you call it an inner light. That I mean, that feels like it might be sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, a bit of a loaded language for what I'm describing. All I'm saying, all, all I want to posit is the existence of that subjective thing that you were describing earlier, that thing that... I feel like I'm experiencing, and I I totally buy the weak illusionist kind of problem of like, maybe everything I'm experiencing is a lie, but it can't be that I'm not experiencing the lie. So, Well, let's just talk about introspection a little bit. Illusionists Mm -hmm. don't deny that we we have introspective abilities, but they, Mm -hmm. again, are like our, uh, like perception, like perception of the world they are mechanisms mechanisms for detecting the kind of internal states we're in so i can recognize when i'm in a certain when i'm having a certain sort of perception uh i can recognize that i'm right now uh, perceiving a blue sky and that is you know that is an important fact about I me mean, it increases my uh, uh the range of of um uh, ways in which i can i can react to to the, to, the, to the sky i can now report that i'm experiencing the sky as well as just uh, mm-hmm. experiencing the sky and uh, reporting that I can report about my experience of the sky as well as reporting about the sky itself. So this, this, and this gives me all, I can recall experiences of the sky, uh, past experiences of the sky and this sort of thing. Uh, so this just increases the range of uh, uh, ways in which I can respond to my, to the world and to my, to myself and to what is happening in me. So yeah, this is this is a move that I saw in some of your papers as well, where it's you know, and this is a this is a common move I think in the behavioralist functionalist tradition because you're interested in what is observable. It's mm-hmm. about what kind of responses can I give, right? If I can give a response, then that that's all we really mean by having phenomenal consciousness is giving the indication that I'm having it when asked or when I try to introspect or something like that. But I mean, I, let's get very basic and sort of 
uh, phenomenological for a second. If you close your eyes and try to imagine an image, do you believe that you're able to conjure up an experience like a tree? Like if you try to close your eyes and see a tree, do you, and this is, this is something that I've been wrestling with myself since I've been reading your papers. Like when I close my eyes and try to imagine a tree, do I actually see a tree in my mind's eye? Well, what I can do is I can close my eyes. I can do this thing that we call imagining a tree. Exactly. Well, that seems to involve directing attention in certain ways. Um, and when I do that, I kind of get all kinds of dispositions to just to, uh, I, 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 I just, for instance, suppose that I had a terrible traumatic experience with a tree in my childhood, then I might start to feel anxious. Uh-huh. Uh, I have uh, I, it, all kinds of associations that trees have, uh, associations with with other, if I'm a painter, say, the, the associations with the, that the colors have might, might um, be triggered. I might be disposed to, uh, uh, to, um, in a way, all of the reactions that might be evoked by a tree might right. be evoked in, in a more, in a more uh, attenuated form by whatever it is that's happening inside me. Now, is there some sort of uh, little? Is there some sort of faint kind of uh, ear, kind of tree-like picture in my mind that I'm observing with an inner eye? Well, I'm not sure about that. It might seem like that seem a bit like that but then again that's just another of the reactions to what's happening okay so great that this i mean there right this this is this is again going back to someone like uh sort of cyril's quote that you know seeming is reality in this particular context right there's no there's no gap like you know if it were pain for example i've talked to you about this before like i can't make sense of the idea of saying um you know, I th- I feel like I'm in pain, but I'm not sure if that I'm actually experiencing that pain. Like, if I feel like I'm in pain, I'm experiencing pain in a phenomenal state. Well, of course, when illusions talk about seeming, they don't mean seeming in the phenomenal sense. I mean, uh, okay, okay, there we the go. Idea, yeah. The idea is that when I, <laughs> they don't mean that there is some sort of inner feel. Uh, uh, that is the same as the inner, that when I say I seem to be having an experience of blue, I don't mean that I'm having the sort of inner feel that I have when I see a blue sky, because the the illusionists deny that there is an inner feel that you have when you're seeing a blue sky. Okay. If you were saying, Mm -hmm. if you're saying, Mm -hmm. look, seeing a blue sky involves having this subjective, having this blue quality, let's say. And then if I was saying, oh, no, it's not that there's uh, you actually having a blue quality. You just seem to have a blue quality. And if I were then, and if you say, well, so what does seeming to have a blue quality uh, involve? And if I say, well, it involves having a blue quality, then, of course, I've just, uh, uh, I've, just uh, uh, I've, I've gone in a circle. But, of okay. course, I, I don't think that. I don't think that seeing the blue sky involves having a, 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 a blue quality. It involves representing the sky to myself as being blue, where <laughs> representation... Uh, oh. has all kinds of uh, uh, effects upon me, that it triggers a whole host of, of tendencies to uh, respond. It's, it's as if the blue sky kind of has a sort of impact upon me through my visual system, and this triggers a whole wave of associations and dispositions that I have. And this is kind of me pushing okay. back at the blue sky. I see the blue sky. I don't just see it passively as something that's kind of out there and is just sort of neutral. I see it as something that is impacting upon me, that has significance for me. Uh, and uh, what exactly significance blue has, I don't, but certainly think of something like pain. That has immense significance for me. 
Okay. And it, there's a whole host, a whole sort of pushback of me towards the world. And I think when we talk about the feel, we are referring in a sort of uh, metaphorical, caricatured way to this interaction between myself and the world, to this impact and the pushback. Okay, this is, trying, this is clarifying, I think. We're trying to, dis, what we do is we sort of distill that out and say, oh, it's this, it's this pure feel. There isn't actually a pure feel. There's this complex interaction that we conceptualize as a pure feel. And the illusionist claim is that's, it's a kind of useful shorthand, but it's not picking out some real additional property in addition to that complex interaction. It's a way of referring to the complex interaction in a way that uh, is uh, useful, I guess, in, in, in some context. But you have to but, you have to argue that the complex interaction doesn't have subjective quality to it, doesn't have a subjective feature aspect to well, it. Well, one way of putting one way of putting the uh, the illusionist view is to say that talk about feel is just talk about that, and so you could cast it in a realist way. I don't want to do that because I think we should we need to exorcise it. It's it's, it's very much like saying, uh, "Do I do I believe am I a, a realist about witches?" Well, um, I mean, that's I deny that... the existence of witches in the sense in which medieval witch finders uh, believed in them, but I'm quite happy that you know which is in a much more benign sense of real. I mean, I, I think I, I want to say, I think it's important to distinguish between error theories about consciousness and error theories about almost anything else. Um, I, for example, am sympathetic to error theories about the existence of a robust self that I think the self is an illusion in a very Buddhist kind of way. Like free mm -hmm. will is an illusion in a, a robust kind of way. Um, you know, I'm I'm very sympathetic to those kinds of things. I think it's I, I get stuck though on being an illusionist about subjectivity, and I feel like your your view has to somewhat bite the bullet on. Basically, it seems like you're saying that that when when you clarified and said the seeming that you're using when it seems like I see a tree is not a a, a phenomenological no. is not a phenomenal representation at all. Um, right, that's, I think, um, you're basically having to say, no, I don't actually see a tree. What I have is what you were describing, a series of behavioralist kind of input outputs that are reliable, um, that give the impression that I'm see seeing a tree and that ultimately there's really not much difference between, or there's at least observable, I, I agree with you, externally observable it may not be that you can find a difference between the philosophical zombie who purports to see the tree and the human being that actually experiences some sort of subjective state of the tree and then says uh, that they see it. Um, but then when you started to talk about representations, I still think this is, this is hard for me to make sense of, right? Um, what is a representation of a phenomenal state that has no phenomenality to it, right? Is it by representation? Do you just mean the dispositions to act? Well, what's a representation of uh, a square that isn't square? What's a representation of uh, uh, the color blue that isn't blue? I mean, representations. I mean, okay, constructing a theory of representation is a you know, complicated mm -hmm. uh, matter. But we have, you know, we have some good theories in terms of, let's say, something like tracking and using that information so something is a representation of it kind of tracks some property and then some other system uses that that 
that uh, the, the representation to guide some further activity it treats it as a proxy for the thing itself something like that i guess is a, 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 a so, so representation is, is, is cashed out in terms of connection, tracking something in the world and use by some further system. Right. But it's not a, it's not a represent. I mean, like, so if I, you know, I'm playing a video game or something, right, I could have representations for my spells and their little icons or something. And they don't look like the actual thing itself, but I know that they correspond to that thing. But that representation right. is still in itself a visual representation, right? It's an icon, right? So are there anything like those inside of us? And are they just different than the way we think that our phenomenal experiences work? And we should really, by the way, I think uh, we all just need to define, we, we, I totally screwed this up, but we need to like say what you think are the essential features of a phenomenal experience and maybe see if the issue is there as well. Uh, uh, okay. I, I am right. conscious that I didn't actually answer right back at the beginning uh, your question about how the positions on this divide up. Mm -hmm. um, so I know it's hard. We just dove right in. It's, you know, it's, the, way, it's the way of the I, world. It's a, maybe I should just go back to the, a little bit and say, because I'm defending illusionism here without really telling you how I got there. And I think it is important to see the, the route there in order to um, have a... Uh, a sense of the strengths and weaknesses of, of the position. Uh, so shall I, shall I just try that? Yeah, yeah. Right. Go for it. So we start with this, with this idea that there is something else that needs to be explained over and above all the, 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 uh, the information processing and the, mm -hmm. the, the functions that are being performed by the brain. I mean, the sort of things that psychologists and cognitive scientists uh, uh, look at. And they can sort of track the process, if you like, of a, of a, of a stimulus, of a light ray, say, hitting the, the retina, uh, of light rays hitting the retina, and there being uh, the information that the, those light rays carry being processed by the visual cortex, and they can track these, uh, how this information is uh, integrated with other bits of information and how its uh, uh, concepts are, 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 are um, applied, and how this information then is used by other uh, cognitive systems and how it eventually it helps to guide behavior and so on. And they can do all this essentially in, in principle from the, uh, the, the light rays hitting the, the eye right through to the resultant uh, muscular commands. Mm -hmm. uh, that without ever mentioning anything other than process, than, 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 than uh, uh, brain processes. They don't need to ever talk about this subjective aspect. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the way the thing is set up. That the hard problem is explaining that subjective aspect. Why, why it is like something for all that information processing to happen, right. um, and uh, why it's like anything at all, and why it is like the particular thing that it is like. Why blue is that way rather than another way. And does and illusionism is, deny that it is like anything, or in? That sense that, that, sense. that, okay. that what we do is we start by distilling out from this complex interaction between the mind and the world. We start by kind of distilling out this sort of essence, this mm -hmm. subjective essence, which is supposed to be the thing that carries value, that is the source of value, and it's the in, sort of the awfulness of. There's a pain episode. Okay, now we all know what pain episodes are like and we all know that we don't like them and that they're awful and that they're things that are bad and we don't want other people to have them unless we're uh, uh, pretty mm -hmm. evil people right now what this picture does is it kind of distills out from that a certain sort of essence the 
the, the, the awfulness of the pain, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be something over and above all this stuff that the, the cognitive scientists, the neuroscientists or whatever could describe and detect. And then you have this problem of how this essence, this, this pain essence or whatever, it might be pleasure or color or smell or whatever, how this, wh- where, how this fits into the, with the rest of the natural world, because it does seem quite clear to us that it depends on the brain. Mm-hmm. You don't seem to get these things without the brain processes happening. Right. It's not people nowadays, few people, so, so few um, philosophers or cognitive scientists are, are believe in a soul that is completely separate from the brain. These things depend on something completely uh, uh, distinct from the brain. They think that the brain somehow causes this, produces mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But how? How does that happen? Because right. after all, all the sort of causal processes that are going on in the brain seem to be, you know, we seem to be able to track those quite well. Uh, by by neuroscience, we don't find things happening in the brain that we can't uh, explain in, in in physical terms. Uh, this seems something extra. Seems to be somehow like a <laughs> like a sort of uh, uh, glow. <laughs> I mean, I'm using these these that's sort of capturing, but it's like a glow or a gas or something that's given off by the active brain, and this is the the heart of the of the uh, the subjective um, uh, part of the of the of the uh, yeah, an inner world of experience. I, I mean, maybe, the, maybe yeah. I mean, like it's even less of a caricature. I think if we just call it the Cartesian theater, right? I know you don't believe the in Cartesian the Cartesian theater. theater. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm very happy to call it that because that's that's a good target of attack. It seems that there is this inner <laughs> world of experience that we are, and, and at the same time, you've got to remember that if you once you're positing this stuff, mm-hmm. you have to then posit something that is observing it and reacting to it. Because I, uh, this seems to me a. An, a, a, mm. a, a well, it's complicated, right? Well, well, no. What is it? Yeah, that is experiencing this stuff, right? Like, and I, and this is where my my illusionism about the self wants to come in and say, you know, the thing that is experiencing what 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 we call the witness consciousness is a very thin self. It's not the robust, sort of ridiculously over the top self that a lot of people think of. Well, now. Okay, so how does this thin self? I mean, does it have sense organs to detect these subjective fields? Uh, I mean, it's it's a bundle. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm talking about like a human kind of self here, right? <laughs> like the self could just be, in essence, the sort of the theater itself observing the experiences, right? It's the realm in which the experiences are occurring, and in some sense, some sort of aggregate illusionary entity created by the presence of these phenomenal states within this kind of theater. I have a genuine, I'm not, uh, I have a genuine problem here with understanding this. I don't, it seems to Uh me that, that in order for anything to be real for me, I I need to represent it in some way. I have to detect it in some way. There has to be some kind of mechanism that is sensitive to the presence of that thing. Things which I can't sense, like say, infrared or x-rays or whatever that i can't sense they're as it were nothing to me to be part of my world i have to have some kind of perceptual or quasi-perceptual apparatus that tracks them that that detects their presence and then uh, provides me with kind of representations that i can use uh, uh, uh to respond now yeah i mean if you want to call that- it an inner sense i mean i think 
Well, now, I, don't, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Now, well, once you say that, then I think you're very you're straight down the road into illusionism because if these things, if the qualia themselves need to be represented, uh, then given how peculiar qualia seem, and I haven't, still haven't really explained the, the different positions on qualia, given how peculiar they seem, how resistant to explanation in physical terms, if we have to represent qualia in order for them to have any kind of reality for us, then it's much more economical at least to suppose that the representations are non-veridical because after all non-veridical representations represent, represent something that isn't actually there they have the same they're the, uh, they have the same cognitive effects for me as veridical representations uh, 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 unless i have other uh, beliefs that that um, uh, that uh, well i mean i think from the out, i think from the outside that's true but from the inside it's not it's not as clear no but the inside this is what i'm saying even from the inside if i don't if <laughs> i don't know what the inside is um it's not the physical inside uh because you know just looking in the brain doesn't show you the qualia so it's some more sort of metaphysical inside uh but <laughs> wherever these things are supposed to be if there isn't right. some mechanism that's detecting them then they're nothing for me it seems to me I, I, well i mean i think the, the, i think but i think the the realist can say there's a mechanism that's detecting them that's your that is your consciousness uh we don't i don't have a solution to the mind body connection problem right i can't i don't i can't explain how I can't. I don't have like a better version of property dualism or something that's going to solve the hard problem of consciousness. But I don't think I can therefore sort of get rid of the problem in the sense by saying, you know, on on the subjective side, it's an illusion um, entirely, right? I mean, I I can buy the non-veridical part. I can buy weak illusionism, but like I still think strong illusionism. It's hard to see how that cashes out when my real world experiences continue to involve what feels like a kind of robust Cartesian theater. Oh, it feels like it. That's why the that's why I call this illusionism rather than just eliminativism. It's not that I think we need to just deny the existence of this uh, this, this uh-huh. uh, the Cartesian theater. I don't think it exists, but I think it sure as hell sort of seems <laughs> in some non-phenomenal sense to yeah, exist. I'm just, we, I guess we, I'm we wondering strong. what that seems, I mean, if that seems can really hold up under pressure is my, uh, well, is my curiosity. I think, I don't think any non, I don't think any phenomenal sense of seeming can hold up under pressure. I think a, a sense of seeming, it, seeming is to be understood as representation. Okay. And right. I don't think phenomenal representation works at all because i don't it's it's you've got to put what is our relation to these phenomenal properties how do we kind so of what do you mean by phenomenal properties because you have a well, i think you have go. a philosophical definition for this that maybe not everyone would be on on board with and i have a pretty stripped down definition of it as well so this is this is good yes because i i think it can easily seem that the illusionist is saying look we're all kind of zombies it's kind of it's all dark inside people's heads. They're just wandering around, blundering around, behaving as if they're humans. But inside, it's kind of a blank. It's it's. Yeah. I, I don't consider that a reductio ad absurdum, by the way. We may have AI consciousness that does exactly that at some point in our lifetime. I, I, don't, I don't. We will. Because I think... I, I don't. That is not what illusionism is claiming, okay. and I think any any AI that was sophisticated enough to sort of interact with us at a kind in a kind of human like way would it wouldn't be like that for it either. Mm-hmm. I think it would need all kinds of self monitoring abilities, introspection in a 
a functional sense, in a representational sense, which would give it all kinds of all kinds of internal sensitivities. Sorry, this is a bit create... of a digression, but I have to ask: Do you think we would be able to observe those introspective capacities? Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. We'd be able to create them. Um, uh, we would have. We would want. Well, but we could create them, and then it could, we could end up with a black box where we can't actually look inside. Uh, we would be able to, like, if the not a sort of metaphysical black box. I mean, we'd be able to. We, we would be able to work out what was. Once we have a a good understanding of what is happening in our own case, we'll be able to uh, replicate that artificially. And uh, mm-hmm. I've no no doubts about that. Okay, it's so that was So. Sorry, I I do want to get these features out, though, for phenomenal uh, uh, states. It's important to understand that what the illusionist is denying is a Mm -hmm. particular conception of consciousness Mm -hmm. that I don't even think is the natural one. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a particular philosophical conception of consciousness, um, which I think is an unhelpful one. So, so what and is at that? The same time, yeah. and at the same time, the illusion is trying to build up an alternative picture of consciousness that kind of, I think, does as much, if not more, justice to our everyday self-conception. Uh, so it's not just that we're sort of just going, oh, look, science can't explain this, just deny that it, it, it exists. That's, that's, that's a caricature. The idea is that philosophers have misconceived this in a subtle, in a very persuasive, very natural way uh, which is itself really interesting because it tells us something about the nature of our introspective capacities. Mm-hmm. The fact that we, that we fall into this picture so easily, it seems so compelling. That's it's itself a very, very interesting fact about the human mind. Uh, uh, so I, 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 we may have some agreement here. I may, there may be some things where I think that like the, the philosophical account of the inner world is, is well, well, look, what is, yeah. what is the, what is the, the, uh, remember the way I, I started this off and I said, I'm looking at the blue sky, and we all agree that the sky is blue. But is that inner blueness the same? Well, this talk of the inner blueness—that isn't—we've already gone into some uh, uh, philosophical theory here, because after all, the the naive view is that the blueness is out there. Sure, is, is, is somewhere up in the. Uh, in the in you're already the taking a sophisticated view of perception, but your your argument is going beyond just perception is more complex right that like these are there's secondary qualities like you, well, 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 yeah um so, sorry um i'll just let me just finish that, that thought because um mm-hmm. the and then science kind of comes along and says well actually you know the colors aren't really kind of out there because people with different uh uh, uh people with with, with uh, different um with uh certain diseases and so on they see things differently and it looks, seems that animals have different kinds of of uh, uh visual uh systems and they are not sensitive to the same range of colors and so on and and, and so on and so forth and what's actually out there is just these sort of surface patterns and the light uh rays being reflected from them and so on mm-hmm. so we say well okay so the blueness isn't really out there but the blueness mm-hmm. is surely real. So it's, the blueness out there is illusory. Okay, there you say, but but still the blueness must be somewhere. Uh, so where is it? Well, then we get this this idea that it's it's somehow in our heads, that it's in us. But then, of course, science uh, neuroscience looks at our brains and doesn't find anything blue in there when you're looking at a blue thing, blue sky. So then it seems well, to be... What do you mean not- by that? <laughs> you mean that, like, they can't find the qualia? Like... Yeah. 
I mean, I mean they, no. can, they can show that, like, you're you're experiencing some sort of perception, right? But, oh, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's just an observability problem, right? Like, no, I agree no, no, no. that they can't see, that no one else can see my qualia. No, exactly. That's the point. So the, the blueness itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blueness seemed originally to be out there. Science tells us it's not out there. So we say, okay, so it's somehow in us. But then science doesn't detect that blueness as blueness in, in ours. Uh, no part of my brain actually turns blue when I look at a blue sky. Uh, all sorts of things happen, but they're not, they're not blue <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, things in the, in, the, in the everyday sense of blue. So mm-hmm. then we have that sort of happen in some kind of private, subjective realm. And that's where this... So the point is we're trying to find a place for blue. This is how Daniel Dennett puts it. The problem of conscious trying to find a place for colors once you realize they're not out there in the real world. Mm-hmm. Now, I think... Now, so now the illusionist now comes along and says, no, that's a kind of introspective illusion, the idea that blueness is, is, is here, is, is somehow in our... Uh, it, it exists in some subjective world. But notice that everybody is happy with the idea that blueness in some senses is illusory we're happy with the idea that the blueness out there is illusory that that's merely represented right uh and so in a way the, the illusion is just as yes that's it it's illusory the blueness out there is illusory it's not out there it's represented as being out there and it's not anywhere else either what we have yeah, is this strong I, conviction that there's blueness out there and yeah and I, it's the second part that i still struggle with well but that you must i think Except that that is a theoretical move to try and save the reality of blueness. I mean, we could say, well, okay, blueness it's, isn't it's actually not purely out there, theoretical. But it's, it's also some... phenomenal. Like, I, I genuinely can close my eyes and experience an image of blueness. Uh, sure, but that's presumably is because you're having some kind of uh, you're in some sort of uh, uh, brain state that is similar to the one you have when you when you uh, actually. Uh, sure, but it is a phenomenal brain state. It seems like it's, it's an internally generated one. It's, it's not tracking external reality. Sure, but it's a phenomenal representation it, in the sense a, that, like, well, you're it, you're using the word phenomenal here to pick out this supposed kind of qualitative aspect of the situation. Let's let's. I still yeah. haven't got. So, so what, is, what, yeah, what, are, what are the features of phenomenal? <laughs> okay, so look, what are the features of, of, the, of the phenomenal? This this peculiar thing. Well. Certain things that have been said about it um, are that it's it's intrinsic to the to, to the experience. It's not it's not any it's not can't be explained in functional terms. It's not a relational okay. not because it's tracking something or whatever. It's it's just what the state is like. The experience is like in itself. It's, it's intrinsic to it. You can't uh, characterize it in in, in 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 functional terms. Another thing that's often said about it, and this is. Um, it's quite important, is that we're directly acquainted with it. We don't need to represent it in some way. Somehow it is immediately present to us. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't really understand that because I don't understand what us is in that case. Okay. It's uh, immediately present to what exactly? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to the observer in the Cartesian theatre? Well, who's that? What's that? It's immediately present. We can't be sort of mistaken about it in that way because once it, provided we attend to it, it's just there immediately for us. Uh, another thing that's said about it is that uh, it's private. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it's only only I can be aware. Again, who's who's this I? Who's who's the only person who can be aware of it? I'm not sure. Um, what other things? It's ineffable. We can't describe it. I can't describe my experience of blueness to you in a way mm-hmm. that can enable you to determine whether it's the same as yours. 
Mm-hmm. I can compare it to other things. I can mention things that are blue, right. and we can all agree that they're blue, but whether that bl- blue is the same feeling. I could probably also compare it to maybe to other colors, but still it's going to be hard to get out If I'd that. never seen color, you couldn't put it yeah, into my yeah. head through talking, I think. Right. right, right. And so you get this bunch of things, and certainly any, anything that has this bunch of features is going to, uh, it's going to look pretty uh, strange. It's certainly not anything that science can get any kind of grip on. Yeah. And now, Daniel Dennett wrote a famous paper about uh, 30 years ago called Quining Qualia. To quine here is a kind of jokey term referring to the philosopher. A joke uh, he now regrets, I understand. I, I think he does, yes. Um, uh, meaning to deny the existence of something whose, uh, the, the, uh, whose existence is obvious. Mm-hmm. Because Quine denied uh, uh, a, a distinction in philosophy of language. Um, now, and I think it's generally agreed that, and so he kind of, in that paper, then it took this notion of qualia apart, and he demonstrated that there are lots of problems with it. And I think it's generally agreed that he did a pretty good job of that. So most people nowadays who believe in, who are realists about phenomenal properties, they, they mm-hmm. tend not to use the term qualia, and they say, well, maybe qualia in that strong sense of being completely private and completely uh, ineffable and subjective and so on, and, uh, Maybe that's not that's 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 not true. But but still, in yeah. some weaker sense, uh, qualia are real. I guess I'm a uh, retro consciousness person then, because like I I don't want to let go of private, ineffable, or subjective. I think that there's they're really important in this context. I, I it's it, you know I'm I'm actually with you there. I don't think uh-huh. I think if you want to have hold on to this notion, if you want to be a realist, then you do need to build in some, some stuff like that. I don't think this what I call a diet notion of qualia, which yeah. kind of strips out all of these problems. I don't think you're left with anything. Well, let's, let's go through the list a bit because I want to, I want to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff here. <laughs> right. The, the intrinsic one, right. The idea that it can't be cashed out in functionalist terms. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. If you, what you mean is like an externally observable, um, sort of input-output behavioralist kind of way, that there there is something that could be going on inside of the individual that is not observable and capturable through their inputs and outputs. Oh, is that, no, is that what that means? No, no it's much meant to be okay. much stronger than that. I mean, you okay. allow all of the internal uh, 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 processes are all completely part of the picture. I mean, anything that's detectable in terms of any kind of internal change any neuron firing or whatever that's all part of the story wait you're you're saying that people who have to argue for quality have to argue that they can experience their neurons firing no no so what i okay. mean is that it's not just in terms of when i say that it's intrinsic it's not mm-hmm. capturable not just in terms of inputs and outputs but in terms uh-huh. of the whole raft of information processing that goes on in between okay the idea it's not, it's not reducible they, to computational stuff uh well it whether the the stuff inside is best described in computational uh-huh. sort of old fashioned computational terms or in some other term uh, terms mm-hmm. doesn't really um, computation in a broad sense yes but the idea is you could have a system that completely uh, replicates all of that in principle you could have a system that completely replicates all of that information processing mm-hmm. and still doesn't have this it's it, nothing about that the the, the, the um, the description of what's happening within the system entails that it has some sort of feel about it. Okay. It's intrinsic so I think, in the sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting open empirical question. I don't know 
like if we're going to be able to create a natural language machine, for example, that has no inner world of experience, but still does everything that we do when it comes to language effectively. So I you, mean, you I never, that, yeah, you never could know. That's the point. I want to give an extra special thanks to all our listeners and patrons for being so very patient this last month. I promise I will work hard to make sure a gap like that never happens again. Very special thanks to our top patrons, Dave Maslich, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, the person who controls the spice controls the void, volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org, Philosophy Book Club will live again, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Thank you all so very much. If you would like more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to my other show, Philosophers in Space. Also, come join in the Philosophers in Space Facebook group. I promise you won't regret it. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, now and forever, you are the void and the void is you.